Welcome to the Media Navigators, brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker, and I'm the Chief Executive. The objective of this podcast is to bring you influencers from across the industry and all around the world, who might bring an alternative perspective or a different approach to marketing. Today, I'm going to be talking to a leader from one of our member brands, and we're going to be talking about a different approach to brand partnerships. A standard conversation that I might get to hear about over here in the UK, we'd be talking about getting an RFP for an an agency or a client, and there'd be a few weeks set up and a short program that could take up to a few months or even one or two weeks. What we're going to be talking about today is something completely different. It's it's a fully, deeply integrated partnership across multiple years and on a number of different levels. Now, I know that some of the people listening to this are going to be really annoyed with me when I say that I think this is something that American brands tend to be better at than we are in Europe. And I'm sure a lot of that is to do with the fact that they have far more sizable budgets. However, even taking that into consideration, the way the Atlantic approaches um, partnerships is different Still, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to um, Brad Gerson, who is the executive director um, of Atlantic Ventures at the Atlantic. How are you, Brad? Hi, Belinda. I'm doing well. Great to be with you. Thank you. Now, um, before we get into the specifics of of what how Atlantic um, Ventures approaches brand partnerships. Um, I'd, I'd really like you to tell us a little bit more about the Atlantic. Uh, the Atlantic is is kind of one of the best kept secrets over here. Um, it, it, the people who know it love it, but your levels of awareness are nothing like you, you have in, in the US. Um, it's an amazing brand with an amazing history. So please just tell us a little bit about the USP, you know, what makes Atlantic different? Absolutely. I could talk about our history for this whole podcast. Um, (laughs) So I'll try to keep it, I'll try to keep it brief. We were founded way long ago in 1857, actually as an abolitionist magazine by some little known figures like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And we were really uh, established to bring about the end of slavery as quickly as possible using intellect, literature, arts, and poetry, all of the rest. Um, And of course, we're now in the year 2021. And what makes us unique in this moment, I think, especially in the context of this conversation and Uh, the people you might consider our competitors, we're not vertically oriented like so many publications today, like the FT and Economist or business publications. The Times is a news organization. We are not vertically oriented, though as highfalutin as it might be to say, um, our vertical, as we like to think about it, is ideas, ideas that really challenge people to think differently about the biggest issues and questions of the day. 
And it creates a really unique environment as in, for advertisers and for marketers um, and a really compelling read for consumers. And it's been a huge part of our success over the last several years in the, in the United States, um, committing to really big questions and ideas that challenge people to think differently about this crazy world that we're living in. Um, so that's a little bit about the Atlantic and a little touch on our origin story. The international market's really important to us too. And we have a great team led by Jemima Villanueva, of course, in the UK. Um, it might surprise you to hear, while we are a little known secret, we have about 25% of our readership comes from the international markets. Uh, we reach about 40 to 50 million readers worldwide uh -huh. and a few million in each sort of each of the, the larger countries in the UK, Canada. Uh, Germany, India, and so on and so forth. It changes on any given month. And I guess because you're quite a, a long read. I mean, you're you're not a, a you, you don't do short form uh, as a speciality. So That's you right. have long levels of engagement with with your content. That's right. Huge levels of. I mean, people spend over an hour with the Atlantic when they spend time with the Atlantic. And, and it's, an inc I mentioned this earlier, but as a creative person and in a creative industry, the mindset readers enter the Atlantic ecosystem with creates a really compelling opportunity to engage with people who are really thinking and uh, by intention are looking for information to challenge the way they're considering ideas and, and brands and topics. So you, you joined the Atlantic in twenty. 14 um, in uh, creative strategy. And, and I understand you were very much involved in the development of um, Atlantic ventures. Um, can, can you describe that? You know, it, it, it's got a different approach to how other media have content studios that you're not not the same really at all. Can you describe that for us? Absolutely. We have a content studio called Atlantic Rethink. Um, when I joined the Atlantic as a creative strategist, I was on the Rethink team. And the okay. Rethink team focuses on developing and imagining branded content programs, specifically working with brands to execute those programs once they sell through. On the venture side, um, we sit outside of the sort of standard operating procedures of any media company. Um, we're within the, the business side of the house, but work very collaboratively and closely with all the groups and divisions of, of the Atlantic. Of course, our editors, our product team, our experiential team, and, and as I mentioned, our sales and marketing team, too. You touched on this at the very beginning. Um, this system by which so much of the media business operates through RFPs and the quick turn nature of RFPs. And often campaigns are quite laser focused on a, on a very tactical objective or a, a short time frame. I mentioned that the Atlantic's vertical, you might say, is ideas. And with this sort of maybe lofty, but it certainly pays off in our journalism, I would say, um, with this notion of ideas and the value the Atlantic brings, not just to readers, of course, but to our partners, uh, 
these big ideas bring big platforms and really big compelling opportunities to engage readers in really sophisticated and intellectual ways. The RFP process, um, with all the value that it brings the industry, actually sort of cuts away at that high ambition and, and high impact opportunity The Atlantic presents our partners. And so Ventures was designed to put a group of development folks um, together to work outside of the day-to-day of the newsroom, the day-to-day of the RFP cycle, and start with concepts born in the newsroom, and then think with time and space as expansively and ambitiously um, toward how we can express those journalism ideas uh, in their most consequential form. So I have a couple examples, but um, you you let me know where to go next. I mean, that's quite an an investment from the Atlantic to to set up um, because it's very long range, isn't it? Um, You know, to create that that kind of cycle, you're talking a number of of years. That's quite unusual for a a media brand to put that level of investment in, in something so futuristic in terms of when it's going to pay back? It's absolutely unusual. The Atlantic's an unusual magazine. Um, A magazine, I would say, doesn't quite capture all of the impact and Mm -hmm. ways in which we think about our brand. But we are are extremely committed to producing the most ambitious journalism in the world, period. Um, Our editor-in-chief calls them big swings. And... uh, the goal of ventures is to send more big swings into the world Mm -hmm. and to form partnerships that help make them even more consequential and impactful when they reach, um, when they reach the world. I know, I I feel like I'm speaking a little loftily, but at the Atlantic, there's a unique, um, there's a unique sense of purpose at the heart of everything that we do. And we don't, we've been around for 164 years. I'm not a math guy, but I think it's 164 years. And we're in this for the long haul and um, constantly thinking about the next five, 10, 25, 164 years versus the next quarter and so on and so forth. And so we put ventures together to really operate on that longer term horizon in practice, not just in theory. I just think that there must be lots of um, producers and execs in other in other content studios who are really, really jealous of, of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a place that we all want to be. I'll say um, I do feel very privileged to be <laughs> in this role and, and to be at such an amazing magazine. I, I'm smiling. You can't see me, but I am smiling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let, let I, I really want to because it, it's all well and good. We're, we're talking lots of lofty stuff, but it yes. would be great to to for you to share. Uh, I know you've you've got a few few programs on the go at the moment, but but there were two that particularly stood out to me as being interest. That there was one which was called um, "Who Owns the Wilderness," and the other was was inheritance maybe you could you could start with inheritance and, and explain the kind of um the, the different elements and the breadth of this program because i think that's what where it becomes really interesting is 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 how wide it is 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, these are such incredible programs. Inheritance is easily the most meaningful work I've had the privilege of being a part of. We actually started developing it back late 2019. Um, our editors were thinking about what to do for Black History Month in 2020 and um, just generally rejected the premise of Black History Month, um, thinking it was too narrowly focused. And um, basically over a period of many months, we developed a multi-year vision for a project around uh, American history, black life, and the resilience of memory. Uh, I think a simple way to describe what we're doing is uh, setting out on a storytelling and technology mission to identify, find, and unbury stories of black history that have been hidden from view for way too long. Uh, especially in the United States, but this is a global story um, for sure, obviously. We were in a sprint on this technology, on this secretive technology project about which I can't say much right now. And uh, a futurist in the room made a comment about how so much of the, so many of the stories we hear about growing up, at least in the United States, are focused on the giant redwoods of black history. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, so on and so forth. And for society, it's just easy to go back to stories about these icons. Yeah, It's not so complicated and so on and so forth. What we're trying to do with inheritance is build out the forest beneath the redwoods to make sure that stories of ordinary and extraordinary black Americans events like the Tulsa massacre on Black Wall Street, which is one of hundreds that nobody knows about. These stories, these events, these artifacts of history belong in the tapestry of American and global history. And we're trying to uncover through storytelling and ultimately technology too, um, as many of those stories as we can. And you mentioned the horizontal or, or breadth of this. Yeah. If I can close the loop by, um, to use a buzzword I hate to use, close the loop. Uh, we have journalism publishing in all formats, audio, written word, poetry, immersive, interactive storytelling. We have events, we have this technology project, um, and we have an extraordinary partner in Salesforce uh, and potentially some more joining a sort of coalition of sorts. Um, but Salesforce got this off the ground with us as our as our partner and they've been a, an amazing partner at that. And the you you mentioned the uh events can you can you describe those a little bit and and is there any possibility you bring any of them over here? Oh that's a good question. I think the answer to your question is yes, certainly a possibility especially as we return to the world. You know, like so many of us in the world, the pandemic upended a lot of plans and narrowed the possibilities and opportunities. Our first few events have been, we actually have one this evening, um, time to Juneteenth with a, a local partner in Sixth and I here in, in Washington, D.C. I'm here, I'm based in New York, but in Washington right now. Um, we started with virtual events mm -hmm. um, where our journalists like Jillian White, the managing editor leading this extraordinary project and icons like Anna DeVere Smith and Jamil Hill and Clint Smith and Adam Harris, many more um, have participated in these conversations. Eventually we'll be hopefully on site hosting events in the various locations 
that we're telling stories about. Okay. So we we haven't got an enormous amount of time, but I really want to touch on um, who owns the wilderness before we, because um, I want to I, I want to have time to talk about um, also uh, you know, how you approach. The, the creating these partnerships in, in in a sort of strategic way but but do tell us a little bit about who owns the wilderness because I love the idea of this yes I'll be very quick we have a huge journalism project focused on um climate change and and this as we see it at the Atlantic is the story of our time and we also see in the world of climate coverage three dominating trends mm-hmm. um to be brief about it or to attempt to be brief about it <laughs> First is a lot of coverage on the political gridlock and the lack of progress, especially in Washington, D.C. The second is around natural disasters, fires, hurricanes, floods, so on and so forth. Important coverage, but not exactly the most inspiring. Um, And the third is one that we're really trying to push up against, this notion of uh, media companies preaching or lecturing or telling consumers what they need to do and think when it comes to climate change and so on and so forth. For us, we see a, uh, a huge piece of the way in which um, society could move forward uh, missing from the climate conversation. That is this notion of harnessing culture um, and, and is speaking to readers at eye level, which is to say, um, not preaching to them, but communicating in ways that make sense to their day-to-day lives and makes them want to share ideas and conversations. And so we launched a new climate vertical called Atlantic Planet. We launched a a project, Who Owns the Wilderness? um, Who Owns America's Wilderness? Inspired by a long history of conservation and naturalism, not just at the Atlantic. Uh, A guy by the name of John Muir, who you may be familiar with, wrote a series of essays over a 30-year period from 1897 to the middle of the 1920s. Those essays led to the establishment of the U.S. National Park System, U.S. Forest Service, but they also ignored the fact that we um, we as a society ignored Native American and indigenous peoples as we were setting about creating the United States of America. I can spend a lot of time talking about that history. And so the project Who Owns America's Wilderness is a provocation with a huge essay by a, a great Native American uh, writer named David Truer, where he argues that we return the national parks to the tribes, several more pieces at the intersection of conservation and environmental justice, We thought about all of this amazing journalism differently than the way most media companies sell sponsorships. Rather than in advance of this project and these these projects launching, selling advertising against it, we thought we have this extraordinary IP and an extraordinary opportunity to harness culture and a thing we know Atlantic readers love, art and experiences of of great sophistication and, and intellect like art so often brings. We partnered with the world leader in experiential art, a company named Super Blue, our sister company under the Emerson Collective. They're um, part of the Pace Gallery. We have an amazing artist and have a vision that we have been developing for months now and are um, excited about uh, to host basically a museum-like year-long immersive art experience that expresses this journalism in ways like you've never experienced Atlantic journalism before. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, so I, I kind of like to take a slight backwards step because okay. you know we've talked about um, 
<laughs> how lucky you are to have have th- this long term investment to be able to 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 think and work on these projects. But but to to bring partners like Salesforce and in on a program like this. Yeah, you've got to work with them in a very different way than than on a normal branded content program. Can you yeah? Can you explain a little bit about? I mean, obviously, no private personal details, but yeah, what? How does that work? Yeah, I'll speak more generally. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and and you make so many good points. I want to be thoughtful here and also concise. Branded content is just a piece of the overall partnership here. Um, And so the folks who lead branded content are often involved in the conversations from the beginning. But because of the nature of these projects, not just the length of them and the sort of horizontal reach of the pieces in terms of all the ways the journalism uh, is expressed and all the ways a partner can fit in, but often because of the topic and because of the opportunity for real impact and engagement with readers that um, makes a real difference, not just in the lives of those readers, but for a brand, especially one committed to whether it's systemic racism in America or this climate story um, and some of the many others that we're working on. We have conversations at the very highest levels of an organization. And it's really important to us not to rush that process, but to make sure that the various groups at our partner organizations are read in and part of the, um, especially with regard to, we, we never ever cross the line around what's ad and what's edit. We respect it at the Atlantic and, and frankly embrace it because it's a, it's the reason we are the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to developing how a brand fits in and can build a campaign around this platform, we really are diligent and collaborative, um, working with our multiple agency partners and our clients to bring everybody along in a way that gets everyone really excited and bought in um, to what we're doing. And it's a difficult process when you haven't done it before, but we've got the luxury now, I would say, of having done it before and feeling expert at bringing our multiple partner groups together to make sure that everyone's really excited um, when we get to kick things off. Brilliant. So um, just thinking kind of forward, obviously the, the, uh, we're hoping we're near the end of the um, pandemic and, and things are, lockdowns are starting to ease up here anyway. Um, what do you see... Um, how do you see the you know the the next six to twelve months? Has you got any new plans for Atlantic Ventures? Yeah, I, you know, I think the I think I said this earlier. The pandemic really narrowed everyone's focus, mm. not just because the appetite for risk evaporated and budgets were down, but there were, for example, experiential was off the table for about 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've been developing a year-long immersive art exhibition for when we can return. I mentioned that obviously in Wilderness. Um, that exhibition is something we're calling The Trees actually. Um, so we're definitely excited about the return of experiential. And I I think... Uh, 
probably too too abstract, but I think the pandemic also reminded us all of how important our our day-to-day lives are and and the sort of fabric of society is. And so much of what we do on the venture side is build really consequential opportunities around Atlantic journalism that cuts to the very core of who we are. And we're really excited about the return of experimentation on behalf of clients, um, leaders and marketing organizations feeling a deeper sense of we need to do more on issues of of consequence, issues that matter to people. Um, And for us, we're really excited to, to continue to pursue what we're doing. And, you know, we just, we launched this little moonshot factory on the eve of a global pandemic that shut us down. So in a way, we're just ready to go. Um, and, and the last few months have been really exciting in the conversations that we're having and ideas that are, are bubbling. Oh, that's brilliant. And I love the, the way you talk about people kind of having got more in, in, in touch with life again or what it's all about. That's absolutely fascinating. I, I, I'm so jealous of your job. Um, I'm very grateful for you for spending this time with us. Um, I really hope that you bring um, both the Wilderness Project and um, Inheritance over to Europe. Uh, and I'll be first uh, on the door uh, when you open. So thanks so much, Brad. And uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you, Belinda. Great Great to speak to you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. The World Media Group is an alliance of the world's leading international media organizations that connects brands with highly engaged, influential audiences in the context of trusted and renowned journalism. For further information, please go to our website, world-media-group.com. Thank you.